morning. morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. Today we're going to continue going verse by verse through Paul's letter. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. This is God's word, and we should hear it and receive it that way. The very word of God. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do come in thanks to you. It is good and right that we do so all the time. Lord, you are generous and merciful. There is more to thank you for than there are hours in a lifetime to do it with. And Lord, we come, we come to sing and pray We come to fellowship and hug and embrace one another and together celebrate the unfathomable blessings that you give undeserving wretches like us. And Lord, in this time, we ask that you would consecrate the moment in front of us, that you would set it apart, make it holy, holy for the stirring up of faith, that you would make it holy for the renewal and transforming power of your work in and through us. Lord, we desire to hear your voice and tune out all others. Come and sear your word upon our hearts. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people agree. You guys ready for Advent season? Yes. It's one of the great times of the year, right? It's a time filled with rejoicing. It's a time filled with carols of old, presents anew. Advent is one of the great seasons of life. And as I reflect at this time of year, we're a post-Thanksgiving preparation for Christmas family. Not that there's anything wrong with other ways of approaching it. It's probably de facto more about time and and availability than it is anything else. But the Bible speaks loudly about Advent, about the coming of the Messiah. And one of the things that I try and remember in this season of life is that every time the scripture speaks of the incarnation, every time the whisper or shout of the coming Christ is offered, it always, always, always has sin in view. He must come to pay For our sin, he must come 
and bear the shame and justice of our guilt and cursedness. Every time the Bible speaks of why Jesus must pass through the gates of an eternally heavenly glory, it speaks of him coming to rescue us from our cursed, condemned, the old word here, damned judgment. We love to talk about John 3.16, yes? But we divorce it at times from 17 and 18. We are born condemned. Paul, as he is wrestling here in Galatians 3, is telling us about the fool's errand that he ran for so long in his life. He's telling the churches of Galatia about the dangers of a life lived in pursuit of unobtainable blessing. He knows the villainy of a wrong relationship with the law of God. He knows the sorrows untold. He killed for that wrong view. He abused his power and authority to make sure that the right view was stamped out until the very moment he met the right view giver, right? He met the risen Christ and realized that he must go back and re-examine the same holy scriptures he had believed before, but he had misunderstood. Remembering that the gospel of grace and freedom in Christ is the theme of this entire letter, we celebrate the doctrinal truth and glorious reality that the gospel is not about what we do for God. The one true gospel is about what God, the true and living God, has done for us. I'm often asked by young men, young women, college students early on in my ministry life, and certainly brought it both age up and age down from there. But I am often asked if you could go back and whisper one thing to your former self earlier in your life, what would you whisper? What would you speak? And I always say, I have two answers to that, so I'll give you both. One of them more relevant today. The first, she's coming. Just got to be honest. Keep it 100 around here. But even more importantly, study the book of Deuteronomy. Study the book of Deuteronomy. 
when you're not sure where to go in your devotional time, young Kevin, go and study the book of Deuteronomy. Go and study the covenant structure of Scripture. Go and read what a people on the verge of the promised land find joy and comfort, find warning and pause. How much of us in all of our lives, in all of its elements, do we need to pause some more? The covenant structure of the book of Deuteronomy is one of the lost glories of the American church. If you do not know what God says is required for your relationship with him, you will not understand the life that he is giving, nor the cost which must be paid to enjoy that life to understand that life. So I encourage you, children of all ages, give yourself more to the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Galatians will sing all the clearer. The chorus of what is being taught and sung in this letter of Paul comes because of the Old Testament scriptures that he had long misunderstood. See, here's the truth of what he is saying. We, fallen humanity, cannot keep the law of God completely, consistently, nor constantly. We can't do it completely. We cannot do it consistently. We do not do it constantly. So the reality is that the book of Deuteronomy speaks of God's covenant curses upon failure. And God's covenant blessings for obedience. Disobedience and rebellion give curses. That is at the center of God's justice. Obedience, the source of his blessing. The basis for blessing in the Christian life is not what you did on Wednesday. It's not what you have consistently grown in since the days of your youth. I think most of the American church is convinced that the Christian life is about sinning less. As if an unregenerate Paul is the goal of Christian maturity. He says that goal belongs in a toilet, flushed away forever. Philippians 3. We cannot keep the law of God. We cannot do it completely. The demands of the law are too severe for us to accomplish. But imagine that for one day you kept the law of God completely. 
what happens when you wake up the next day? I was reading one of the commentaries on this verse, and it told the story of two men who went to dinner at a restaurant, and they were old friends. They had grown up in youth group together. They had studied the Bible and learned the catechisms as young men, and now they were 40 years or so old. Welcome to your midlife crisis. So two men in midlife crisis wanting to taste the joys of their youth meet for dinner. And right before the waitress comes, the one man says to the other, how have your years been? And he says, oh, I struggled the first few years after high school, but then I got my life together and I stopped sinning. I have lived that way these last 20 years. The other friend, taken aback a bit, tries to figure out how to chew on this testimony just given. The waitress comes over bringing their drinks. She goes to set them before the table and spills the drinks in their lap. Then the one man says to the other, well, that streak's over. (laughs) 20 years without sinning, all it took was one drink in your lap. Maybe we must reevaluate our definition of sin. Maybe we must consider all the more how we respond in moments of grief or suffering, in moments of spontaneous spillage, all in your lap. The words he spoke to the waitress ruined his supposed 20 years of sinlessness. Of course, they didn't exist anyway. But the only way to find yourself successful in keeping the law of God is to misunderstand the law of God. You must lower its bar with every breath. When Paul says here that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, Paul is assessing your best performance and understanding that it is lacking both in quantity and in quality. You do not keep the law of God perfectly. You do not keep the law of God consistently. And certainly your consistency never rises to the level of constancy. So this verse that Paul writes, pronounces God's solemn judgment against sinful humanity. It's that simple. If you seek to have a relationship with God founded upon your obedience, you will know only judgment. And the Bible is not ambiguous about this. It's not vague. What is being referenced here in Galatians 3.10 is cited from 
Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. So let's set the scene for a moment. Moses is not going into the promised land. But Moses has recorded the first five books of the Bible. He's written them down. He's encountered God on the high mountain. He's received the revelation of the Ten Commandments. God has used him to take a large family from Egypt and turn them into a nation of people. Freed from the tyrannies of slavery. Freed from seven-day work weeks. That they might have one in seven to worship the Lord as he has commanded. God has given Moses the book of the law, the book of the covenant. And as they are on the verge of entering into the promised land, we see the scene for this mighty moment. Half of Israel is put up on one mountain in sight of the land they are going to enter. The other half put up upon the opposing mountain such that when one speaks, the other hears, and when they speak, the first hears. And they pronounce the demands of the covenant back and forth, singing of God's cursing for disobedience and God's blessing for obedience. And as they experience what Moses had recorded anew again, these words are not new to them the way they're often new to us. The last thing they do and hear is what it means to be in relationship with God. And to see what comes before them both as gift and duty. This is what it means to live as I decree. And he is the one who has the highest level of rights. To set the relationship in any way or any form he desires. Yes? So Jewish men are teaching Jewish boys. And Jewish moms are teaching Jewish girls. From generation to generation to generation to generation. Throughout how many centuries? It's in Deuteronomy that we're told to remember that there is one God, not many. It's in Deuteronomy that we celebrate the life that comes from a relationship with God. It is in Deuteronomy that we see warnings and provisions for the unfolding history of Israel long before it takes place. In Hezekiah's rule over Judah, you see centuries later that in Deuteronomy, God had prepared a way for them to celebrate Passover when they had missed it in a later month. God had warned and taught about having kings 
long before Saul was anointed as first king in Israel. The book of Deuteronomy covered history before the present in its moment and history that had not even happened yet and how to handle it. Book of Deuteronomy is far more important than we understand. When the prophets go to quote from the law of Moses, they most often reference Deuteronomy. Most of us might say that it's really Leviticus that has the law more than any other book. And we would be wrong. Deuteronomy is in itself a giant covenant between God and his people. So it's no surprise to us that when Paul begins to teach and affirm this salvation and wrong view of the law that salvation could possibly come from obedience to the law of God, it is Deuteronomy 27, 26, which is the final curse pronounced in Deuteronomy in this back and forth from one mountain to the other. Listen, Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people upon both mountains say what? Amen. They say what? Amen. What does amen mean? Yeah. Let it be. So be it. Yeah, what he said. It's not just time to eat when somebody says amen. Cursed. Be anyone of any age, in any place, in any level of understanding, who does not exhibit by their lives, the truth of these words and do them always. That's what's being said here. Cursed is anyone who does not confirm the words of the law of God by doing them. And all the people agreed to these terms as if they had any other choice. It's God who is imposing the covenant relationship. We see this same truth referenced in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty in only that one way. He is guilty for the rest of the day and tomorrow it's all good. Because God, you know, he forgets sin. Without payment. Whoever keeps the whole law, even if they could, but fails in just one point, is guilty of failing every command. This is literally all or nothing. All or nothing. If we jump back into church history, we can get some help 
understanding these ideas in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We're going to look at question and answer 84 and question and answer 82. Let's do 84 first to set the stage. What does every sin deserve? It's a very simple question. What does every sin deserve? This is Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 84. The answer, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. Can I get some happy news, please? You guys got all dressed up and came out on a holiday weekend, and this is what you get? Sin and curse and judgment? Yes. 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 Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life, that would be now, and the life to come, that eternal life. There are times where people want the Bible to see that uh, purgatory is real. It's not. They want a place where God is a little bit calmer than the, the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible can be a little obsessive, a little bit over-demanding, unrealistic. So we move backwards in the catechism, but forward in today's sermon, question 82 is anyone able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? It's not a trick question. No mere man. It's the opening line to the answer. The God-man did, but no mere man. Since the fall, referencing the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but do daily break them in thought, word, and deed. God imposes a covenant unilaterally. Upon his people. He develops it bilaterally. So he imposes it one way. It comes from him and it's given to them. And then it's mediated bilaterally. God interacts with us and we interact with God. But the structure of that interaction, the demand of that interaction is perfect obedience at all times and in all ways. This is why Deuteronomy teaches that you are to love the Lord your God with Yeah. Any part of you missing in that command? Heart, soul, mind and strength. That, that's you. That's your soul and your body. All of your soul, all of your body, all of your capacity. The Lord demands your perfect obedience and you fell being made. There are some in this younger generation who go, well, that's not fair. God can't make that the rule. 
How's he going to be mad at me when I didn't do anything? And that's where we go, ha ha, you need to study more. I'll meet you at my connect table anytime you need. Right? Because the demand of the law is total and your failure occurs in the womb. But so too might Christ's provision of salvation be granted into that womb. Isn't John the Baptist the first to recognize Jesus and he does so between two bellies? The incarnation of Christ is mesmerizing in its scope, in its power, and in its purpose. So when we see Paul interacting with the Old Testament, Deuteronomy specifically, and he comes to this conclusion in verse 10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them, he's referencing Deuteronomy 27, 26, which is the same thing that James is teaching about in chapter 2. It's the same thing that church history is trying to explain to us in these catechistic questions. Listen to Philip Ryken on this. Philip Ryken says this. He says, Paul is defending the doctrine of justification through faith alone, insisting that no one can be accepted by God through the law unless it is kept in all its perfection. Isn't that great? Unless it is kept in all its perfection. When was the last time you sought to keep the law of God in all its perfection? And this is when Christians struggle with one another. Because some go, well, we can't. So let's end the discussion. And others say, no, no, but wait. I agree we can't. But one day we will. When will that day be? Glory. Do you think you will fail to keep and obey the commandments of God, the law of God in all of its perfection forever and ever and ever? Do you think that the Holy Spirit is not right now conforming you to citizenry for glory? Isn't that part of the Holy Spirit's job to sanctify you, to set you apart, to change you in motive and purity, to so thoroughly transform you that you are prepared to live in a place without sin? Does our pursuit of works righteousness grant salvation ever? No. And yet, it is how we will one day live. Well, then how are we to live now. Isn't that the question? How do we live being delivered, ransomed by Christ already, but not yet living in the place 
that we are headed. That is the discussion that Paul is after. Correction is required for understanding the path of salvation. And the people of God must learn the law of God as the way of God because it's the will of God eternally. If you got lost there, it's okay. Keep studying, keep reading, keep listening, keep pursuing this. But the Bible assumes that we are fallen in our first parents, that the mystical union we have with Adam and Eve is born out in the act of creation and passed on in generation to generation to generation. Theologians refer to this reality as total depravity, the doctrine of total depravity. And most people, when they hear total depravity, reject it by its title. Because their assessment is that people are not totally depraved, but when they think that, they are often mistaking the word total with the word utter. We are totally depraved. We are not utterly depraved. Utterly, yeah, praise God is right. <laughs> Utter depravity means that you do the worst to the most evil at all times and in all ways. It's the vilest and to the vilest degree. Does that make sense? So if you can imagine a scenario where some evil villain of history was pleasant for half a minute, to somebody in his family, then he was not utterly depraved. If he helped one little old lady, even for self-righteous reasons, he's not utterly depraved. So what do we mean when we talk about total depravity? We're talking about every aspect of our being, corrupted, corroded by Sin, every aspect of our being is affected by the fall. That does not mean there is no possibility of human or earthly good. It just means that all that you produce left to yourself does not have a part of you that is perfect. Every aspect of your being is Fallen, And as a result, anything you produce is, to varying degrees, tainted, corrupted, perverted, cursed. So if we break the law in any place, we're guilty of all of it. We're totally depraved, born that way. Why is Jesus then not totally depraved, the true son of Mary? Why is he exempt? Because the scripture teaches us that he is a new Adam, the first of his line. 
come to do for us what Adam failed to do for himself and us. Seeking to earn salvation through obedience to the law or law-keeping is a fool's errand. We cannot do it completely. We do not do it consistently. And we certainly have never done it constantly. Therefore, all here are guilty of transgressing the law of God and its punishment, cursedness. Thank you very much. Good night. (laughs) For how many centuries? For how many centuries were people unsure about such things? Listen to 1 Kings 8. For time constraint reasons, none of these are in their full context. I encourage you always to vet the scriptures that I present. It's not true because Kevin says it's true. It's true if the Bible teaches it. So what is in the mind of the author of the letter? What's in the mind of the author of the book? That is what God is saying. Trust it more than me. But for brevity's sake, 1 Kings 8, 46 has as a side thought embedded in this verse, there is no one who does not sin. It's this larger context unfolding, and then the author sort of gasps for a second, reminding us of the fundamental truth. There's no one who does not sin. That sounds very Paulinian, right? And how many centuries earlier? This is where Paul gets his basis. Everybody loves Isaiah 53 around Easter, yes? But Advent is with Easter in mind. Think of Isaiah 53, 6, the first of the rhyming couplets. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. (laughs) You guys... The Lord says that we're dumb and wild like sheep. It's why God keeps calling shepherds as pastors. They're used to the biting animals and the petty conflicts that sheep and rams are known for. We walk away. We go astray. We've turned every one of us to our own path, to finding and providing for ourselves rather than trusting the good shepherd to do so. You can see Paul later on developing this thought in Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. None are righteous. Not one. Later on in the same chapter, Romans 3.23 This is one of our memory verses. Who has it? Brave volunteer, raise your hand and give it to us. Romans 3.23. Oh, come on. I love you and shame on you and I love you and shame on you and I love you. It's literally on the screen. (laughs) At least we don't have any cheaters in the room. I'll celebrate that. Half victory. 
you get half points in the law of Kevin. But in the law of God, you still get a zero. <laughs> Romans 3.23, read it together. Is that true of you? What hope do you have? Is that true of you? What hope do you have? Why is Christ our hope? Because he obeyed when we rebelled. He kept when we forsook. Why is Christ the hope of glory? Because the law perfectly reflects who he is. How he lives. Behold the law of God as more than just a mirror that shows you your blemishes. Behold the law of God as the window of God. That you might see his character. Know his compassion. Uphold his way of life to perfection. In fact, if we study what the whole Bible says about human nature, we could become sad. But a believer should never be sad when beholding human nature. Because you are being transformed. And you will one day soon live and love in all its vitality. Perfectly, in perfect relationship with God, with no more rule breaking possible. This is the, the great news of the gospel. And we will see this as Paul unfolds this argument going forward in this chapter that Jesus Christ broke the power of sin on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin as our substitute, switching places with us. And third, it's a pledge. The cross of Jesus Christ is a pledge that one day you will live without the presence of sin anywhere evermore. Power of sin broken. Payment for sin rendered. The presence of sin in its removal pledged forever. This is, once again, what Paul is saying in this letter. Galatians 2.16 we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, not by works, by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will ever be justified. So since we cannot keep the law completely, consistently, nor constantly, the law of God cannot bless you. No matter what a sneeze might be able to accomplish, the law of God cannot offer it. The law 
only condemns. The blessings are given by Jesus Christ. That's why there's no such thing as performance-based Christianity. Because your score has already been assessed in the first hour of conception. The law of God could only curse you. But in Christ, he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. He takes the death we should die and gives us the life he has earned. And he takes upon his shoulders the cursed status that is ours and gives us the blessed status that is his. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we come to you rejoicing in righteousness and life and blessing. We are rejoicing not because of our own praiseworthiness. We are rejoicing because you have done what we cannot do. You have kept the law. You have treasured the law. You have obeyed the demands of the law. Father, thank you for giving us Jesus. Father, thank you for knowing our need in the first hour of the fall and promising a Savior who will come and do all that is necessary to provide salvation. Father, thank you that our sin, our death, our curse can be seen and contemplated in the memories of the world by the cursed status of Jesus Christ hanging on a tree. Father, prepare our hearts this week and next for our great study of what it means that the hanged man hung for us, that we would live with him, for him, eternally. We give you thanks and praise in his name and all God's people agree.